And he looked at me as if I were being very naive, and he said, well, Mitch, I'll make you a deal. After I'm dead, you talk, and I'll listen. <laughs> I laughed, too. But a few weeks later, when Maury passed away, and I sat down in my basement to write this book that was supposed to just help him pay his medical bills, supposed to be a tiny little book. I kept thinking back to that sentence, you talk, I'll listen. You talk, I'll listen. And I realized in that last little exchange was everything Maury had been trying to teach me for all those Tuesdays, and everything I've tried to get across in any of the books I've written since. And it's very simple. If you lead your life as he did, making time for people, giving of yourself to people, sharing of yourself with other people, then when you're gone, you are not 100% gone. You live on inside the heads and hearts of everybody you touched. And they can talk to you after you're gone, not because they believe in seances or ghosts or something, but because you spent time putting your voice inside them. You gave them something to remember you by. Welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of Podcasts on Cedric Suggestion. With me today, we have how can I describe Rishi? He is a paragon of fashion. Thank you. A mogul of intellect. <laughs> how do I describe him? Um, how do I describe Rishi? Class of 2017, Warwick Law School. That's true. One of the most genuine people I've ever met. Thank you. And Thank you. one of my dearest friends, to whom I owe more than I could ever explain. That's really touching. Thank you. We also have my dear friend Chris, also class of 2018, Warwick Law School, with whom I have been through many difficult evenings ahead of exams and have enjoyed stupendous amounts of delicious food for <laughs> four years and whose friendship I value more than is initially apparent. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. I am, am honoured to have you on one of my podcasts, especially one about a book as potent as this, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Albom, was recommended to me by my dearest Claudia. Generally, I don't take into account anybody else's opinions on anything because <laughs> I am conceited, but this was really, really touching. This 1997 book forced me to look inwards and consider aspects of my life which I haven't given much thought to. I just, I hate Max. So, how are you feeling about this uh, podcast? Yeah, I'm feeling good, man. I'm feeling good. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on it, even though I'm, I'm pretty, like, certain what you'll speak about. There were some, <laughs> there were some quotes that I think that were a tiny bit left field that I, I really liked. I know it was about life and death, but there's some stuff just more about, like, you know, social environments. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in this book. On the front cover, it says, an old man, a young man, a life's greatest lesson. Yeah. But Rishi and I were talking about this mm. beforehand. And perhaps life's greatest lesson isn't how to die, but rather how to live. For sure. For sure. I, I think even though Maury's really important in, in terms of, obviously, the whole thing sort of revolves around him, the, the student is actually who we should take a lot of our lessons from. Because when, when you look at, like, flashbacks into sort of him and Murray, how they sort of interacted when, when he was a student and when Murray was a teacher. And then you also look at his life now. He's doing 
doing everything opposite to what he thought he would be doing. I think you can take a lot of lessons from the fact that Murray impacted him so greatly. It's not just about Murray and what Murray thinks. It's actually the impact he had on the students. Precisely. And and you get the sense that Mitch is feeling not embarrassed in a way, but he's he's just reevaluating things quietly. He's not you know, yeah. he's not he's not he's not opening up to Murray completely, but he's to us. But he, he you know, he's a bit reluctant about it and there's something about that which is, is that really holds the book, I think, as well. There's an underlying reluctance which sort of holds it all together. I, I, I think it's confrontation impermanence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a big thing. Like, you know, you've got to realise that at some point in your life that everything does go. It's a big deal because a lot of the stuff that he built up, he built up his career and he thought that would bring him happiness, eternal happiness. And obviously it's not a reflection of what actually happens in the world. Mm-hmm. So, so I think for me it's a confrontation with the idea of temporariness. I agree with this, this idea of confrontation. I mean, a lot of people would possibly get to the stage that uh, Mitch is at and maybe even feel happy. But the funny, the funny thing is, is that Mitch gets to this position and sees that Murray's dying and he starts, he starts to have to confront all these feelings and all these evaluations and he actually realises what he thought he wanted is just turned upside down. When, when Murray says things, the, the, the book will tell you that Mitch just sort of sunk back in. You know, you, you hear that a lot, that he just sunk back in. Mm. And I think it's important. He's really evaluating his life at every stage. Yeah. Which is something that people ignore forever. You know, like, Yeah. It's something that no one really does. Some people do. But it's do, you, do you think that st- this absence of self-reflection comes from the fear of what one might discover? Yeah. Uh, mm. looking inwards and, and actually evaluating is you know it's the sort of thing where you, where you suddenly realise is this what I want it's very easy to look inwards and evaluate the difficult part of the process is to put into effect the changes that you would like to espouse in your life just to, on what you said about fear of self-reflection it's actually more not that necessarily people are so scared to do it or even put in effect the changes, it's just that you get so comfortable at a stage in your life that it's, mm, it's yeah. just hard to like make these big changes. You're telling me to adopt a new belief system and change the way I, I look at my life and my thought pattern and everything. And at a certain age, for a lot of people, it's just hard to do. Yeah, I agree. I definitely You're agree. Right. You're right. Tuesdays with Mori is a book about life. It's a book about death. It, it's a lot. It encompasses a lot. It's difficult for us to put it into a single sort of phrase because this, it, it just, it means so much, this book, I find. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in it, but if we look at the front, Tuesdays with Maury, an old man, a young man, and life's greatest lesson. That's what it says on the front. What do we think of that as a description? What do you think, Chris? Initially, I was a bit, um, I, was, I was a bit confused, you know. I mean, obviously on the face of it, it's what an old man's perspective, a young man, and sort of life's greatest lesson. I feel like the old man, which is Murray in this case, is the one that we feel to be espousing all these great lessons, right? Yeah. But I feel like what the book does, especially the title, by separating these things, is that life lessons can be found everywhere. Even though I take a lot of wisdom from what Murray says, I actually find a lot of life lessons just from Mitch himself. Indeed, yeah. in, in the changes that he's made. Yep. So let's start with a quote 
from you, Chris. What's your first quote for us from Tuesdays with Maury? Okay, so the first one I have, even though the book's about sort of life and death, uh -huh. this one's more to do with the social aspect of life. If you're trying to show off for people at the top, forget it. They'll look down on you anyhow. Yeah. If you're trying to show off for people at the bottom, forget it. They'll only envy you. Status will get you nowhere. Only an open heart will allow you to float equally between everyone. Mm. I, I love this quote. I just did. I loved it. I think as humans, and especially as such social creatures, we're always trying to show off for people. C Cedric might be the only exception. <laughs> because <laughs> he seems to be his own person. And, and even you as well, Rishi. I'm talking sort of generally. Yeah. I know me, I, I can admit myself, sometimes I like to show off for people. And the quote, the quote just hit me at right at home because it, mm. it just, it doesn't matter who's out there. You have to be willing to open your heart to everyone. That's the only way you're going to achieve the actual result you want. Because yeah. when you show up, you're trying to achieve a result. You're trying to get people to like you. But really, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is open your heart and the right people come to you, I think, is, is the main center point of that quote. I just found it so interesting because it's a hard thing to do, having an open heart. I don't know about you guys. Mm. Having an open heart is vulnerable to me. Vulnerability scares me. Just the weird juxtaposition of trying to show up or being scared and, you know, just opening your heart and just being vulnerable. Definitely agree. What this actually reminds me of, strangely, is I, I did this course uh, recently. It was a the National Youth Sector. It was an acting course. We did this one exercise where we had a big group of 32 people. We'd all sit in a circle and in the middle would be, say, four or five people. And one of, one of those people has got something called the power, which is... It's just an energy that you hold, right? Everyone everyone else around, the other three or four people, are trying to get that power from you. So you, to get the power, you, you go up to the person who's got the power and you say, you say yes, as an offer, you, you know, will you give that to me? And the person with the power has to then decide if that other person who's just offered to take it from them is matching their energy. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was really sort of eye-opening. It was weird. It was, it was really tense. I had the energy, right? And I was pretty downcast that day. I wasn't feeling it 100%. So I was just like, okay, I've got this. I don't want to mess around. I just want to have it. And a few people came up with, to me with offers and they were sort of like, yeah, yeah. And then one uh, one person, one of my friends, she she suddenly had this burst of energy and she was trying to, you know, knock me out of that sense of not feeling great. Um, yeah. And I was just wasn't feeling it. So I couldn't give it to them. I wanted to because they're my friends, but I just couldn't do it. There was a girl mm. I connected with and she... I think she wasn't feeling it that day either. She didn't even offer to me. I just we just had an eye contact, and immediately I, was, I went and gave it to her because the quote reminded me of that because it's about having an energy and being open to recognizing what other people are about and then reacting to that. Showing off is such a positive act, whereas opening your heart is yeah. kind of passive. Yeah. You know, when when you, when you, I think is what you're trying to get at as well. When you open your heart, it's just, all right, well, whatever happens, happens. And, it's you know, That's why you sort of probably connected with that girl. Yeah. But the act of showing off, you're putting energy out there. You're, you're, you know, the, the quote that you can never create energy can only be transferred, right? Yeah. You can't create this energy to show off. You just have to have what's in you and transfer it. And the only way you can do it, in my opinion, is opening your heart. Yeah. I once read The Wasp Factory, Ian Banks. And there was a poignant passage in it where the protagonist removed all of the labels on all of his clothing because he refused to be a walking advertisement. 
<laughs> and that's that has followed me in life that quote because I it's more pertinent than just labels I mean yes uh, a higher label might might indicate better quality in some yeah. in some instances which is fine because sometimes you need nice quality especially in this country where it's very cold you need good quality cotton to, to stop you from freezing this aspect of of showing off for reward i mean yes one ought to court attention to gain power but you you mustn't your i mean your motivations must be noble i think is at the heart of this debate everyone's yearning for truth right everyone's yearning for a connection yeah and everything else is a conceit that's all i have to say about that what's your what's your first quote bushi i'm not sure exactly why i chose this one now but i like it page 61 okay so this is where maury was so he was a he was a university professor and he was uh, he did this group exercise where it's pretty well known where one person one person falls back and the other person's got to catch them and they have to trust them he said that everyone found it difficult. One girl succeeded and she just closed her eyes and, and fell back and she got caught. And then he says, um, you see, he says to the girl, you close your eyes. That was the difference. Sometimes you cannot believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. I don't know why I chose that, but it's, it spoke to me in a way. I think we're, we're really used to analysing by what we see. But as we know, I don't think what we see is the full picture of the you know, there's that whole thing about deception. I'm gonna chuck advertising in there. Everything seems to have an agenda in a way, and then it's perception. Yeah, and it's misperception as well. Yeah, I, I fully agree with what you said about everyone has an agenda. In reference to the quote, I have a serious, almost unhealthy mistrust of my eyes, and, no, no. and when I say that, I, I'm referring to the fact that I know that what I see is rarely actual reality. If in, in more or less most cases, if I'm looking at a person, what they're showing to me isn't what the actual reality is. It's often, you know, convoluted with what they're thinking, their life experience, what they're trying to show me, what they're trying to hide from me. So, and whatever I look at, it's hard for me now to just see it as that. Could possibly be because as lawyers, we're the most skeptical about things, but Indeed. it's mm-hmm. more just a mistrust of what I see in front of me. So that quote does really resonate with me as well. It's just a departure, isn't it, from what we're used to? Because obviously growing up and everything is all about what you can see. But then when when question all of that, yeah, what what do you actually have left apart from what you feel? Yeah. Bigger question is what can't you see? Yeah. I think it's yeah. a very useful skill to be able to look through another person, thing, advert, it's a very useful skill to be able to depict it because if you if you see where the influences are coming from, that's when you see, you begin to understand. I mean, in adverts, if you understand the motivations, and this is going back to the point about motivations, if, if you're clear about your motivations, you know yourself. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're clear about another person, what they're seeking and why, that's more important because then you, you get to the centre of the issue. If you know from what tree the fruit was born, you'll understand it better. Of course, it takes a lot of skill though. It's it's not mistrust so much as it is you just have to cut through any preconceived notions that you might have. Mm. You have to set those aside and that's most difficult because prejudice is very real and not just in a race context. Prejudice is real. Prejudice comes from the Latin prejudicio, I believe, which means to prejudge. 
and that's it. Prejudice is prejudging. It's having preconceived notions about something and being able to break through those is so important. So I'm going to give you my first quote now, uh, which is actually just two pages on. It's on page 63. It's a little bit less in depth than yours. I hope the listeners will uh, be able to breathe for a moment. <laughs> and I suppose tapes like photographs and videos are a desperate attempt to steal something from death's suitcase. Oh, I love that. It's really poignant. Stealing something from death's suitcase. You're saying that what one ought to die with is their memory, and the knowledge that they have accrued and the good that they have done, rather than this sort of almost hints at uh, this superficiality of recording yeah. so much that we record now. It, I find it very superficial. Mm. It means nothing. I listened to a podcast about artificial intelligence, and in it they were talking about social media. And you know I'm, I'm in a war with social media. Yeah. yeah. There was a part about social media and they were talking about by doing this by taking tapes like photographs and videos by putting them up somewhere where people can see them in a way you are uploading your own consciousness onto a platform so that when you die people have a mental map of exactly what kind of person you were to remember you by isn't yeah. that creepy as all hell <laughs> Yeah, a very dodgy, a mental <laughs> map of your consciousness. Mm. When, what do you think, Chris? Two things. One in reference to the quote and one in reference to the mental map of the consciousness. I think that mental map of consciousness lives less within those recordings and more within the minds of the people you affected. Okay, so you're saying the impression left upon those people is your mental map of you don't even have to have met these people. Like if, if we look at someone like um, a Martin Luther King or just a really historical figure that affected a lot of people. Positively. He was very big on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't necessarily meet people, but a lot of people would say they probably had a mental map or image of what he was like. Now, mm. whether that was whether that was correct and whether it was just perceived and not actually who he was is a different story. But at that, set, at that point, it doesn't actually matter because the person can no longer give you more evidence. You only have what you have. Rishi, what do you think? All right, let's, let's go with the quote first. Yeah, um, one thing at a time. To me, it, I, I think that's about respecting what isn't permanent. And obviously, we all love taking pictures and recording things and playing things back because um, you know, it's an emotional sort of stimulus for us. But I think what he's saying is that, you know, those things don't mean so much when... Well, I think what you're getting at is, should we spend so much time looking back when we could yeah. look, okay. l l look, look down, up and around? I'll make it more personal. Um, since I have been living more presently, and by that I mean moment to moment, and not allowing thoughts of the past and the future to drag me down, since I've been doing that, uh, this this might sound really trivial, but I've just stopped taking pictures so mm. much. When I was out and yeah. about, you know, I'd be taking pictures of things. Now I literally just sit and enjoy, which I think he's sort of getting at. When he says this, it, he's talking about how he's been recording his conversations with Maury. Yeah. And then he thinks that actually these tapes, they're just trying to snatch something out of death's suitcase. Mm. By keeping these sort of memories, you lose the joy of the moment. 
You really do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. You, you can't recreate the moment and you can't fully enjoy the moment if recording it. The moment that you're trying to capture will never be the same no matter how yeah. many times you look at the video. It, yeah. and, and it says just two lines down, Maury was looking at life from some very different place than anyone else I knew, a healthier place, a more sensible place, and he was about to die. If we can take one thing from this conversation about social media, it's that it, it, it sort of poisoned our perception of what it is to be alive and to be living and, and, what, and what, a, what a good life lived is. Because mm -hmm. the, the problem with this instant-like culture that we have, this instant gratification culture that we have, is that people devalue acts. Yep. People devalue visiting places, going out with their friends. There's almost, there's no, that if you can't record it, the worth is taken out of it. And we need to fight against that with everything that we have. Because events, places, meetings, your friends, your family, that has so much value. And that value does not stem from how nice the photograph you can put on your Instagram is. That makes me sad and angry. What I found that happened, I use my social media to create a version of myself you know mm. a much more in my oh. head at that time a beautiful version of me an outgoing version of me i created this this fake version of me and then that version existed you know it did it was material it existed in my instagram it existed in my facebook it existed even even in my in my messages if i'm living day to day not being able to actually achieve that because it is a it's from my imagination and when you know when will I actually be happy? So I've I've, I've stopped using Facebook completely, mm. and I'm yeah. trying to cut down on Instagram. I install it and reinstall it twice a day to look for messages. I really identify with this and, and with what both of you are saying because social media is people showing a version of reality to other people. The problem is with this version of reality is you're comparing. I don't have Facebook and I don't use Instagram and I don't use any of that. So I only have LinkedIn. If I'm looking up at someone's Facebook, I'm comparing my whole life, which is the downsides, the upsides, everything, to only their highlight reel. Could you imagine that? The only thing I have to go off when I'm looking at this person's social media is their highlight reel. They will not tell me when they failed their driving test, they'll only tell me when they passed it. Yeah. They won't tell me when they got yes. a bad grade, but only tell me when they graduate. Yes, and he's right. It's such an imbalance of information. In my opinion, your brain just isn't meant to handle that much information about this many people. And I agree with both of you completely. Social media is one of my biggest gripes with humanity. I don't agree with it. It's, superfic it's superficial to another dimension. And this goes back to what you were saying before, because the impressions that people leave, it's, it's the impression of the person that they want to give rather than who they actually were. And that's really, really disturbing. What's your yeah. second quote for us, Mr. Chris? My quote follows on from your quote. Love is how you stay alive, mm. even after you are gone. It kind of speaks to what we were just speaking about, living at death, having a mental map of someone. I'm going to back this up with another quote. Another quote I heard, <laughs> not verbatim, but another quote I did hear was, you die when you actually die physically, and the real sad death is essentially when the last person says your name. When, when I say love is how you stay alive, even after you're gone, that means the imprint you've made on someone's life is what they remember. The things you said, the things you did, the, the way someone made you feel is what keeps them alive. Because really and truly, it's all just consciousness. For instance, Cedric, 
I don't know what your experience, your actual conscious experience is like, but I have my own view of you mm-hmm. in my own conscious. I hope so it's positive. Oh, it is positive. <laughs> don't worry, you got it, mate. Um, <laughs> I but, like, it. <laughs> but to me, you'll always be a certain way, and that will always be replicated in my brain as long as I'm alive. Do you understand? Oh, good. I'm glad I made a good impression. <laughs> oh, yeah, but don't worry, great impression. <laughs> love that quote because it, it's important love is how you stay alive even after you're gone but it just tells you that you have to love people you have to mm. open your heart and not everyone's going to receive your love the best in the way that you would like but the people that matter so it's so important it is yeah, what that, do you think Rishi? that was lovely um what it actually reminded me of i had coffee with a friend uh, a couple of days ago and she i hope she won't mind me saying this her, her grandmother passed away a while ago her mum has dreams with her grandmother and there she's able to meet her grandma again and see her again which I think is actually such a beautiful way of putting it I mean that person's remaining alive and when you say everything else is consciousness it absolutely is because you know we what we have is our, our interpretation of someone or something it doesn't make it false at all I think and actually I'll get quite philosophical here we are all one in my opinion I think we're all manifestations of the same consciousness and i think that is really beautiful the idea of love as something that keeps the idea of that person alive for me they're always going to be there but it's the idea of love it's that idea of connection that that um, really keeps things going uh, i don't know uh, it's, quite, it's, yeah. it's really profound really profound so sorry just to add on to that our entire experience is, is in our minds i think life is so if i had to put a percentage on it i would 99.9 percent of our life is mental Everything we experience, all everything is through the lens of our mind. As you were saying, if you can have strong feelings about something or someone or, or anything, it exists in your mind and that's what makes it important, not what it actually is. It's how you recognize it and uh, identify with it, essentially. Yeah, I agree. But I'm, I, I'm also on the side that I believe in sort of transcendental things as well. So even if even if we don't, perceive something i think we can still be affected by something stuff like that but can you explain that book yeah so experiences you know emotions feeling you know if you if you write for example if i'm writing and i just get this wave of inspiration i just keep writing for about an hour and Mm. i read it back and i'm like that's actually really deep i think stuff like that to me is magical in a way and I, i think the way i perceive these things is spirit you know it can be for some people it can be God, for some people it can be higher power, higher consciousness, whatever it is. I think that there are some things that are transcendental. I think that, yeah, even if, if Maury's dead, I th- in, in real time, I think he still materially affects because of that idea that, that, we, that we can all tune into the same kind of thing. I think love is so important. Yeah. It underpins everything. Every aspect of one's life ought to be in some way related to to love, to goodness, to kindness, to... Maybe these are just my Christian values, but honestly, it's so important to use your time in this world to do good, which relates to my next quote. My second quote, it goes like this. So we don't get into the habit of standing back and looking at our lives and saying... Is this all? Is this what I want? Is something missing? He goes on. 
you need someone to probe you in that direction. It just won't happen automatically. Maybe we can instigate that process, that process of self-reflection. And I know inflection is a big theme of today's podcast. But, I mean, how do we go about taking a step back when one is often so compelled by racing forward into the next thing, the next activity, the next task, the next homework, the next job, the next house. We're so concerned about the future. And some of us, as you were saying, nostalgic photography, thinking about the past, we seldom think about the present. When do we ever stop to think, actually, here I am, I'm alive, I'm breathing, I have this magnificent, miraculous ability to understand those around me and to reflect on what they're saying and how amazing that is, and yet we don't give it any thought. There was a quote in the, the Capuchin Museum in Rome, and it goes like this, Thank heaven for its blue sky. It takes a long upward gaze to restore our faith. Mm. That just matters to me so much, and that links up with this. We're not in the habit of standing back and looking at our lives and saying, is this all? We have so many feathers in our collective cap. It feels almost wasteful that so many are closed to the idea that there is more. It's such a terrifying idea, as it's described there. It's kind of horror description, standing back. And we stand back looking at our lives and saying, is this all? Is this all I want? That is absolutely terrifying. And I think I think we, t- we touched on this earlier. It takes a lot of bravery. I also think it takes a lot of misery, right? I think you need to be really down to realise that you have the option to step back and have a look. I think thinking about the future can be so addictive. I don't know what it does in terms of brain chemistry or whatever, but thinking about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, that's addictive. It gives you some sort of drive, but I don't think that drive is coming from a a positive place. What do you think, Chris? I agree. I think the problem is we as as humans, this whole aspect of being comfortable, because as, uh, as Rishi said, only misery sort of provokes us to look at ourselves, right? And this is why other people are so important, because there's not enough onus on an individual to really check themselves. It's something you have to consciously do yourself. The only time people look back and say, what is going on here in my life, in, in this present moment, is in times of crisis, yeah. and times of misery, because you're looking for a way out, right? Even if you look at the average person, who maybe not everything's going well, but it's enough for him to get by. There is no reason for that person to look inwards and say, all right, well, what what can I change? Being able to break out of the habit of being too comfortable. Personally, I don't ever want to be too comfortable. Yeah. I, I, want, to be, I want to constantly be like, is this all? Literally what, what they've said, is what's been said in the book, like, is this all? What's missing? At the same time, I must say, I, I think there's a line. You don't want to get to the point where you're questioning the present so much that you forget to be grateful for it. Do you, do you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to question it to the point where you change things that are really affecting you badly, but you don't want to question it to the point where you're not happy with the present because that's the goal, in my opinion, to be happy with the present. Because when these questions are asked, the answer can be, yes, yeah, nothing's missing, I'm fine, all right. But I think the whole point of the book is to live in the present. Exactly, exactly. I think the exactly. whole the whole idea is stop being distracted to the point that you don't realise the majesty of what's around you. Yeah. 
be be enlightened enough to know that this wonder and merriment surrounds you rather than focusing on things which ultimately don't matter. Also on what Ricky said about looking to the future, I don't know why it's so addictive. I think it's the human mind trying to minimise issues that might arise. So I don't know about you guys, but often when I'm thinking to the future, I'm trying to solve an issue before it's even occurred. Mm. Or I'm trying to like where my life will be without even having the blueprint to get there. Sometimes I find myself looking 20 years into the future and oh. trying to see how I'd deal with a specific situation, but I'm not even there yet. It's almost insane to look at the future, yeah. but we do it. Personally, I, I don't know why. It's something that I think you need to really train your brain not focus too much. It's okay to have a plan and a blueprint, but that's different from fixating on the future. Yeah. I think fixating on the future and the past is very, very unhealthy, which is the, the main point of this book. I think you're spot on and I think especially with social media you can't be present when you're looking on social media it's a collection of snapshots highlights you know Eckhart Tolle has got a book really I'd recommend it. it's called Presence I was I was pretty lost when I was reading this book and he said it very mm. simply he said the future doesn't exist like it's not real it doesn't exist mm. it can't exist then I was just thinking to myself all that worrying all that anxiety that I have over the future is it's bullshit, basically. You're yeah. so right. Like, the future doesn't exist until it arrives, and by the time it arrives, it's the present. Yeah. Rishi, your second quote. I asked Mori if he felt sorry for himself. Sometimes in the mornings, he said. That's when I mourn. I feel around my body. I move my fingers and my hands, wherever I can still move. I mourn what I've lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying, but then I stop mourning. Uh, just like that, I give myself a good cry if I need it, but then I concentrate on all the good things still in my life. This one was really, it's quite touching. Do you ever mourn your death before it happens? Yeah, I mourn sometimes in the morning. And I actually think that's a really amazing thing to say and to have a cry in the morning about it. I think it's also an incredible thing to do. I talk about being in the present, blah, 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 but really we're going to feel shit. We're going to feel stuff. Giving yourself that time to cry in the morning to mourn your death I think it's actually it's really healthy Maury is a very aware person and he seems to me pretty enlightened especially on his deathbed and then he, he's actually allocating his time to mourn and feel the pain feeling the pain is it's really difficult when stuff comes up when life situations change and you actually have to sit down and feel that pain and then just giving yourself that time to feel that pain because that pain is legit we're human we, we do have emotions we don't want to become someone who doesn't have emotions because that's not a mm. fun life yeah that, that was really that really struck me because he's actually allocated himself that period to feel your emotions and then let them pass and there can't be good times without the pain indeed, no. indeed. that that was the main theme of pennies from heaven Oh, if you, okay, if yeah. you want the That's things really you love, good. you must have showers. Yeah, it's it's talking it, about how there wouldn't be there wouldn't be green flowers without showers from heaven. The way that nature is set up shows us how we should approach our emotions. Because if you look at nature, and if you look, you know, you've got the rain, then you've got the sun, you've got night, and then you've got day. And I know these are quite basic things, but when you look deeper into them, it's without one, there can't be the other. Without yeah. saying the copy that, and when you and when you apply this to your emotional landscape, and when you look at it in that sense, mm. you, if you were just happy all the time, you wouldn't know what it is to be happy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's not necessarily saying that you need to be sad or make yourself sad, mm. but you need to appreciate those feelings when they're there. It gives you a better grip on life. And following from that, to to mourn in the morning, it's a wonderful metaphor for dealing with your pain in stages. Mm-hmm. The condition of humanity is that we die. That's the price we pay for being alive. Knowing that is an extremely painful and extraordinarily moving experience. It puts value on, the, on our whole existence. And this impending demise frightens the hell out of me. I think about it far too often. I never let it hinder my work. It perturbs me on a scale which I'm finding difficulty to describe. Mourning a little bit every morning is a very healthy way of getting to grips with the fact that you are going to die. Of course, Mori was much closer to death than I am. Yet still, it, it's so important to understand how to deal with your own pain. We're going to feel a lot of pain in this life yeah. with various tragedies that are going to befall us in all walks of life. And really knowing how to look at that pain and face it and come out the other end feeling some kind of relief is so important. Some pain can feel unbearable. Someone said something once, it was in relation to a heartbreak, he said, respect the pain. Mm. And that stuck with me big time. Also, I, I don't think you can plan, don't think you can plan your pain. I think it just comes when it's ready. I'm just speaking as a, as a 22 year old, I'm very young, obviously. So yeah. I haven't experienced pain, but I've experienced pain. Obviously pain's different. I think I'm speaking from a pretty lucky position, not having had anything really awful happen to me. Okay. Chris, your third quote. Okay, so my third quote is, accept who you are and revel in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good, positive. (laughs) I love it. That's that's kind of why I picked it for the the last quote, because it's so positive and acceptance. I don't even know. It's so hard. Begin. <laughs> acceptance is one of those things that I, I don't know if we ever truly accept who we are. I don't know. So accept who you are and revel in it. Revel in it doesn't necessarily mean be happy with it either. It means explore it. It means, so this is who I am and this is the kind of things that I like. This is what gets me down. This is what makes me happy. Know it inside out. And I think that genuinely is the key to being content not happy but content i love i love this self-acceptance i found particularly difficult i say i found in the past tense because i feel like i'm learning to accept myself and yeah you know you just get a really good feeling from it accepting your thoughts as well if i've had a few days where i feel really off i'm you know really sad and crying a lot I learned to accept that and it's past. Accepting yourself, I think it's such an old concept. And accepting, is sort of in meditation and things like that, you know, it's accepting what's there and just let it pass. But I think that is one of the most important lessons I've learned recently, you know, in recent months and years. Acceptance doesn't have to be necessarily very happy. You know, obviously, acceptance brings joy, it can also bring sadness, which is absolutely fine. Accepting yourself and reveling in it is important, but you must also be very fully aware of your faults. 
Yeah. And knowing what you're good at and what you're bad at, as I know exactly what my accolades and my drawbacks are, because they're in front of me all the time, especially my accolades. I remind myself how great I am on an hourly basis, but I'm also <laughs> fully aware of my drawbacks, and I'm fully aware that this perceived arrogance is one of them. I'm not actually, if you get to know me, not actually arrogant. I, I don't ascribe to myself this grandeur that I perceive. Knowing your faults as well as your accolades is very important. Yeah. Go on, Chris. Because I, I know you, and you're mm. not egotistical to me. I think <laughs> you just know how to accept yourself. And the thin line between accepting yourself and having an ego. Having an ego is only accepting the good parts about yourself. And yeah. Having an yeah. Accepting yourself is knowing the good and the bad side yeah. and reverencing it. So... So that's it. The absence of the bad side makes it an ego, but knowing the bad side brings you back down to earth. Do you understand? I think when you when you accept yourself, you open up the space to really like get to know yourself and understand yourself. My final quote, page one hundred and twenty. Sorry, this is Maury speaking. The truth is, part of me is every age. I'm a three-year-old. I'm a five-year-old. I'm a thirty-seven-year-old. I'm a fifty-year-old. I've been through all of them, and I know what it's like. I delight in being a child when it's appropriate to be a child. I delight in being a wise old man when it's appropriate to be a wise old man. Think of all I can be. I'm every age up to my own. Do you understand? Love that. Yeah. This is How can I be envious of where you are when I've been there myself? Yeah. Um, this, this one got me personally. I found that childhood excitement, joy, imagination, all of that. I lost it, you know. I got buried under loads of worries and anxiety and depression stuff like that having that quote and actually thinking about how everything is now i'm still that person you know i'm still all those ages it's all happening at the same time he actually quotes gandhi in this this is from mahatma gandhi each night when i go to sleep i die and the next morning when i wake up i am reborn i always i always say uh, age is, is is made up to have that idea and to live with the idea that that's all happening simultaneously, it really opens you up, breaks all these boundaries that we and that society make for us. The idea of that I'm still that child that was running around doing the monkey dance, you know, <laughs> I had a monkey dance I used to do. That's still present, you know, for me that's still there and stuff to do with how you remember people. I, I have this idea that Everything is stored in, you know, in my body somewhere, my cells, everything that I've seen, everything that I've smelled. You know, when you smell something and it takes you exactly back to that place. Yeah. The only way I can understand that is that that is stored somewhere in my body and it's just coming out again, resurfacing. I think that's a really yeah. beautiful idea that, that our childhood is now, um, you know, our 20s are now, our 30s are now. You know, I think there's essence in us. I think there's God energy or consciousness in us that is timeless living with that opens so many possibilities learning to live with your temporal limitations and the miraculous majestic miracle that it is to be alive and also to recognize that you can't have everything you can't be young forever and that pressure of temporal stricture mm. under which we live that gives value to our own presence 
in the present, and that ought not be sniffed at. That needs to be acknowledged, and that needs to be taken into account. And Maury yeah. takes into takes it into account beautifully because he says, "How can I be envious of where you are when I've been there myself?" And that's wonderful. What do you think, Chris? He's sort of looking at it as like, uh, "No, it's a. Uh, I can now access that element of my life and take whatever experience I want from it and act accordingly." Whereas if you're twenty, you can't access your thirties because you haven't lived it. I'm gonna close with a final quote. I was asked a question by my dear friend Nicholas. I don't think he realised how hard it hit me. I wasn't able to answer him straight away because it's too big a question. See, he and I are both Christians and he asked me, do you think your career in law is worthwhile in a greater good sense? Is a life in law a life well lived? I've got two quotes. So here goes. You don't need the latest sports cars. You don't need the biggest house. The truth is you do not get satisfaction from those things. You know what really gives you satisfaction? Offering others what you have to give. And he goes on on page 127. Devote yourself to loving others, devote yourself to community around you, and devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. Now, in answer to Nicholas's question, do I think the legal career I'm headed for has purpose and meaning? Frankly, no. In the greater scheme of things, no. When you're doing corporate conveyances, writing up contracts, when you're sorting out client issues about a payment that they haven't received from... Does it, does it have purpose and meaning? No. Essentially what you're doing there is you're making somebody else's life easier. And that's fine, because people need to have their lives made easier. But I'm just talking about the commercial aspect of law. There are many aspects of the legal profession which are noble and which are meaningful and which have depth. I'm talking about human rights lawyers, humanitarian lawyers, you know, the, the lawyers in Amnesty International that fight for causes which are objectively good, that kind of law, the law that directly affects people's lives, whose lives need to be affected by the law in order for their human rights to be maintained, achieved, granted even, that's important and that has purpose and meaning and that amounts to devoting yourself to others. We're always taught as Christians, a life well lived is a life in the service of others. And that has stuck with me. If, if I'm going to die, if when I die, I would like very much that my career in the law and that my life stemming from it has contributed to somebody else's life and furthered somebody else's existence in a positive way and I feel that commercial law just doesn't have that aspect of deep goodness the motivations are wrong the tree from which commercial law is born is 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 rotten and that's the problem the motivation that you have for being a commercial lawyer that's not good that doesn't come from a good place generally making a lot of money fine good personally I find law as a stepping stone I'm going to use it to do what I really want to do, which is to open a restaurant chain, and it'll be a good restaurant chain, a good, hearty,
proper portions and realistic prices restaurant chain where everybody will come and they will be happy because the atmosphere will be glorious because I'll pay my staff properly because I'll treat everyone nicely and not give a damn about where you come from or what you look like. Thank you. I don't put enough stock in where people come from to, to act differently towards them. Certainly not negatively. But yes, in answer to your question, Nicholas, I do not think that commercial law is intrinsically good. And I don't think anybody can argue that it has a greater purpose other than to make people's lives easier in the moment. It doesn't contribute to the great pillars of morality that we're, we're taught as young children. It doesn't actually have any effect in the long term. That's sad. This is a sacrifice we have to make in order to have the things that we really want and in order to be able to help those that we really can, because right now I'm not in a position to be of any use to anybody. But after I become a commercial lawyer and the skills that I garner from that and the wonderful life lessons I will learn from that experience will enable me to move on and do what I really want to do, which is to help people. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Well, when you told me that we were going to be doing a podcast, I had no idea what to expect, but yeah. it's definitely something I enjoyed and would look forward to doing again on an equally as interesting book. Indeed. We'll yeah. find another book, hey? Thanks for coming, Rishi, as well, all Thank the way you. from London. It's true. And from the train. From the, tra on the train. <laughs> See you next time, guys. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. The basic statement really is twofold, as far as I'm concerned. I would all learn it too late. to be compassionate with yourself and with each other, to be loving with yourself, towards yourself and with others, and to take responsibility for yourself and for others. If we learn that lesson, this world would be so much better a place and we would be so much better human beings. Compassion, love, awareness, and responsibility for and to each other. That's the lesson I've